Hello and welcome to this episode of The Inspired Attorney. I'm Sharon V and today we're speaking with Joshua Walker. Joshua shares with us how he got his start in the legal world with the intention of becoming a war crimes prosecutor and how this has led him to where he is now. Joshua also talks to us about the importance of utilizing technology and how the legal world can evolve to better serve client needs. Hi Joshua, thank you for being a part of The Inspired Attorney. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Sharon. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you here as well. Can you please introduce yourself for our audience purposes? Sure. My name is uh, Joshua Walker. Uh, I'm an IP lawyer by trade. Uh, I work at a giant company, uh, not practicing law per se, um, but my background is in legal AI. Uh, I've got a book that just came out recently called On Legal AI and uh, Artificial Intelligence. And I've done probably every job under the sun that a lawyer can do. So uh, I've seen the universe to some extent and hopefully had a, a, a positive impact, at least on to some extent on profession, I hope, through other people and other great colleagues. Well, that's wonderful. I'm sure your insights will help our colleagues now today. Can you tell us how you got into law and why you got into law? Sure. So it was it was very mission driven initially, I would say. Um, first, I just wanted to note that though that I know it's during the time of COVID. I know everyone's freaked out. I know it's going to be really difficult. You probably haven't seen the worst of the economic damage, and it's life and death for a lot of people. So hearts go out to everyone. And all I can say is let's persevere, right? To to help a lot of other people to kind of reignite the reasons we went back into the law in the first place uh, and to, to sustain ourselves and our families at this time. So I just want to say hearts and thoughts go out to, to everybody. Um, my name is Joshua Walker again, and uh, I became a lawyer because in about 19, I was in college in uh, mid-90s, right, uh, 92, 93, and at that time, there was a genocide happening in Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Yugoslavia had broken apart uh, because the strong man Tito had died, and there were massive atrocities happening there. There were uh, there were rape camps. There were uh, uh, murders of large number of of, of men in these, these towns. Um, m- many many uh, Bosnian victims, but also victims from other ethnic groups and religious groups. And um, it you know teed me off right in a huge way. I was just a student reading about this in college. Uh, And I ended up creating a major called conflict studies at my school, uh, and I was going to try to do something about it. And I went to Bosnia for my sort of senior thesis research in about 94. There were sort of, that's a whole long story in and of itself. Um, And while, when I came back, I snuck into a law school event. You know, there was like those career days where you say like, this person did this, how did they get there, right? So my the one I snuck into as an undergrad was uh, Crystal Nix. Uh, she graduated from HLS, and I'm not sure when, but just an amazing, amazing person. She worked for John Shattuck. John Shattuck ran the Human Rights and Labor Department at the Department of State in the United in the U.S. And so, basically, I just annoyed her for a year until she gave me a job. Uh, and it was like they had to hire us through DOJ. It was really complicated, so I was in the same room that all the DOJ. Uh, paralegals and case managers were in like it was the same room right they were doing this big antitrust case and biggest antitrust case in history but we were doing the rwandan genocide database and she said i i don't have a job in bosnia but i have one in in rwanda the rwandan genocide had happened while i was in bosnia 
and everyone was I met was saying, you know, we're happy to go to Bosnia, but we'll just we'll never go to to whatever to Kigali. And that's exactly where I ended up going. Um, long story short, we had been building a database. Uh, it's the same thing that all of us have dealt with. It's document management, right? So we had a few million pieces of information in the case. And um, the only way we could get access to it was um, was a microfiche, which is a, essentially a photograph, really small photograph. It's on a photographic reel. And you reel it around 2 million times to find the one document that you need. So we didn't have a functional database for lots of reasons that I won't go into. So we had to build something from scratch. And that is still today the best database I've ever seen. Uh, because it was isomorphic to the thing we were trying to do. We were in the office of the prosecutor. I'd been assigned to the national team for this Australian cop named Michael Hurrigan. God bless him. And I worked with someone named Amadou Dem and um, uh, uh, a bunch of amazing people from all over the world. And Hurrigan, he was a he was a cop, but he was also, and he wouldn't tell you this, a crown prosecutor because he was a you know classical archetypal you know cop type. And he took a very dysfunctional situation management-wise, and he built teams that were beautiful, like really worked well together. So you'd have a Dutch cop and a Senegalese cop working together. They'd each have different backgrounds and stuff. And they they were producing. And each of those two investigators was mapped to a very specific element of proof or element of investigation we had to go and, and, and hunt down to get the... We were, we were after the core perpetrators of the genocide. And I mention this now, it seems like a million years ago, Two weeks ago, one of our most important um, targets, not in my team, but for a different team, uh, prosecution team, was just arrested in Paris. So this is very close to people, and the, the people that suffered and had their families killed, they're, they're still around. Anyway, we built the database. So here are the elements of proof we had to make. Here's the, the teams, and we built the database to map into both those things. So elements of proof the prosecutors needed. The database elements, which is just a Microsoft Word document, there was no technology, zero anything. And over here was the 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 people, right? And out of a very difficult environment, where you're creating a court and a prosecution operation from nothing in a war-torn country, they they ended up getting those prosecutors and Michael. Um, every single target they went after was was convicted, including the former president, uh, prime minister of Rwanda. Um, Jean Kambanda, uh, Theonas Bagasora, who was one of the masterminds of the whole thing. Uh, and so that, to me, was an introduction to data science. Why was I interested in this before? Well, like any of us, a lot of it was just family background. Like my dad, when he was about 50, created a, a business from scratch that was very, very database dependent. Uh, and it's still running now. And I was 15 years old, and I saw him do this, right? He just went to the basement invested his time and took some risk and he created this company which essentially is able to predict uh how hotels do in the, in a certain state and uh it, it was amazing kind of how he could predict you know what was going to happen using different variables fast forward like 15 years that's exactly what i did for ip lawsuits uh, it was essentially the exact same thing just mapped into a very different domain so i'm really appreciative of seeing that, seeing what he had to do, you know, the 15 hour days to start a company. Um, but also seeing him really help the economy and, and help a lot of people through financial things and, and, uh, real estate and, and hotel business. So, uh, but I wanted to go become a war crimes prosecutor. Then nine 11 happened. And that plan was completely derailed because 
the U.S. was really focusing on hunting terrorists. They weren't focused on kind of crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide as much. There was a split between how people were thinking about it. And Europe and the U.S. kind of just sort of set in their ways a little bit. And we never had a deal to have an international criminal prosecution operation with the U.S. on board. Um, we never have, we don't have a Nuremberg type mechanism right now because we haven't managed to agree with our European colleagues enough. So that door was closed, even though I had great references from law school. But another weird thing happened. Uh, I was in, um, uh, I went to law school in Chicago. Uh, I had avoided economics like the plague as an undergrad because it was this huge, it was like a thousand people in the course. It was very famous. They had famous professors and everything, but like, it was like a thousand. It was like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not cattle. So as punishment, God sent me to Chicago. Uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm incredibly thankful to Chicago and, and, and Harvard and everything. But if you're going to fall in love with mathematics in law school, that is it, man. That is the place to go because they have this law and economics thing. A lot of you, like yourself, have a background in have an MBA and a JD. You know, for me, it was the first time I really saw mathematics and the beauty of it. And I was taking uh, corporate finance for lawyers, right? Which is sort of a it's a it's a it's a less intensive version, shall we say? I won't use the pejorative, but it's a it's an easier version that lawyers can do. Um, but you learn about real options theory. And on the way into school in the morning, I was listening to a book called Against the Gods, The Story of Risk, while I was driving. And it was all about how insurance got created in the London Wharfs and how they created these mechanisms for managing risk across a broad swath of different entities and, and opportunities. And it changed my life. And so um, I loved working in Rwanda. Just the people that were there, it was very intense, you know, um, the hours and everything, but you're helping people that have been murdered, right? Or whose entire families have been wiped out, who survived by living in a drainage ditch for two months, right? Which makes COVID, it puts it in perspective a little bit. As difficult as it is, like the people that suffered in Rwanda and Bosnia, that was a different level of, of uh, harm and, and difficulty. And so, um, again, it's good to just put that in perspective. Uh, and be thankful for what we have, however difficult it is right now. Anyway, so I knew I wanted to do computer science and law, something that applied these two things together between the database stuff in Rwanda and, um, you know, law and economics. And there were just, Obama was teaching there at the time. So that was great. Uh, Judge Posner was there, Cass Sunstein. So really just amazing. Jeff Stone, right? Just amazing, amazing minds that were really inspiring. But Chicago was the most intellectually intense experience I think I'd ever had in a really intense short, short period. And I learned the, the beauty of math, if you will, uh, even though I'm not a good mathematician by any stretch of the imagination. But it was conservative with a small C, too. And, and by that, I mean, when you walk around Palo Alto, you walk into people all the time that want to change the world, right? You will walk into these people, right? The, the people you read about in the press. Uh, a little less so now, right? But but certainly at the time, in like 2001, 2002, when I was graduating, it was there. So, but in Chicago, I, I had a hard time getting people to change their lunch plans, literally. Like it was, it was that was the challenge. Just brilliant, brilliant people on, on both quantitative and qualitative analysis. But that was the, the, the challenge that I had. And so I went to Palo Alto. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I worked for a big law firm, which ended up being a good idea because it was 2001. Crash number one, 
right? Two, we're in three right now. And we're at the beginning of a crash, even if we got willing to get to a quick recovery. So uh, I ended up at a big, wonderful law firm, but it was, you know, I was, it was a lot of hours, right? Like any other first or second year associate. And what we're doing was very important. Like if you mess something up, someone could lose a billion dollars, right? On the sick page, or, you know, it could be an SEC filing or, or what have you. I was doing corporate. I was sneaking into the IP group as much as possible. Um, and um, anyway, so uh, I, I was bored out of my mind, right? I loved the work. I loved the law, but it was also like some fairly mechanical things were happening. And we had this, uh, we had this one client who was, uh, we were selling a small software company to a big European company and they had a change of control issue, right? So when you buy a company, as a lot of you know, uh, a lot of your contracts say, if there's a change of control, this contract no longer applies. So they had an in-license coming in and there was a change of control. And so they were losing the ability to make their software potentially. So some unwise person put, let me talk to the client directly as like a first or second year associate. So the person I was taught, the client said, what's my risk? Not knowing any better, I said, well, here's a kind of a formula to think about the risk of this loss of license from your change of control. He was very happy with that. The client was very happy. And I said to myself, gee, it'd be nice if I could put some data into this and actually do some analysis. Fast forward a couple of years later. So we, we started a lab called Codex at this time. That's a whole long story. I'm not going to bore anyone with, but it was exciting. Um, fast forward, I'm sitting in my office. I'm now an IP litigator. Don't ask me how. It's too long a story. I'm an IP litigator and the partner walks into my office and I'm like a third or I guess I'm a third or a fourth year. And he goes, okay, you have a choice. You can do another patent lawsuit semiconductor lawsuit in East Texas. We've done like a, a dozen of them, right? Done a lot. Or I had this little startup, uh, you know, um, social networking company. It wasn't really a term back then, but they do this social thing with the thing. And like, so, and it's a trade secret issue. Uh, and in like a nanosecond, I chose the trade secret one. Turns out, of course, that case, that case was uh, the facebook.com. And we've been sued by a couple of Harvard students and long story. I'm not going to talk about any of it. But the public part was I got to do a lot of the, the day-to-day work was, I was just the, the one associate on it, and there were two partners for a long time. And even though my role was, was you know, whatever, I was just, just doing the day-to-day, and we had a, a lot of positive things that happened there, um, it was inspiring to see what they were trying to do. The, the impact they were having, even when they had 200,000 users, you could see it. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? I am such a loser. Like, what is going to happen, right? Like, I've got I've to do something. A friend of mine calls me. He, he he had been one of the co-founders of the lab we started at Stanford, which was still we're still looking for the right project, right? And he goes, "Hey, we're doing this IP litigation project. This IP litigation project is like uh, it's an academic project, but pretty well funded. And we're gonna we're gonna analyze every single patent, trade secret, copyright, trademark case in the U.S. And because it was I was a Chicago guy, I had to do antitrust cases as well." because I couldn't show my face back in Chicago if I didn't. And there's overlap between patent and antitrust cases between those two things. So I go, sounds boring and doomed to failure. I don't know anyone who could who would want to do this and whatever. I was, I was very nice, but I was like, oh, it's not interesting. And then I thought, I was like, two days later, I was like, you know what? This is what I do. This is like that Wanda project, right? You know, when you're like, Something you can do where you're really self-actualized, where you're not this kind of odd person out, which I was, right? I was building databases and law firms and making diagrams. I was, I was clearly very weird. 
but helpful. And I still did the work, right? I wrote the documents at the end of the day, which we needed to do and to try to win the case. And I said, I got to do this, right? I've got to find a way to do this. Uh, I applied and there was a long process. And fortunately, I was able to, to, to get the, the job. It took a huge pay cut, right? I was able to keep uh, uh, you know, helping my firm for a bit, but it's a huge pay cut regardless. And the reason I said the project was doomed was it was called the IP Litigation Clearinghouse. And Stanford had done a project like this a few years before called the Securities Class Action Clearinghouse. Securities Class Actions there's like 250 of those a year, at least there were at the time, and it's all public. Patent, all the settlements are private, and you could have like 9,000 different docket events. Any one of those could be a 500-page summary judgment order. I mean, you got to sort through this stuff to figure out what's going on. We had 120,000 cases to go through. So we were going to die of old age before we got anything useful for people. Anyway, that's a whole other story. It's in on legal AI. I'm not going to bore you with it, but long story short, it was Stanford, so we spun it out through like 20 miracles like it we almost we should have been killed like it took a lot of miracles for us to survive and that was my second most fun job that i've ever had just doing that and um anyway it's a lot of things so sorry to bore you with the background but there's probably a little bit of a of a cause causal vector in why i've done so many jobs uh in my past uh anyway so that's a little bit of background I don't, I don't, that wasn't boring at all. And also I think it's so fascinating to see that the different li- uh, ways our lives go. If you're also open to seeing um, how it's going to twist and turn. I think that's, I think that's fair. You know, I, I do also, I think economically, if I had just kept my head down as a, as a law firm person, economically, it probably would have been better, but it would have been, I think I've been able to help more people in some ways in this way. Uh, so I think there is always a yin and yang. You don't want to change too much. Um, but I'm glad I've had the opportunities I've, I've had. And, and it depends on how many people you reach, right? So you, you can think of that uh, that way. But I also think there's something off in the legal profession. Like it's, there's, I, I just felt like it was we were too much doing scrivening and kind of work that, that really should go to machines so we could focus on helping people, like connecting with them, figuring out, you know, what's, what's, what do they need to do instead of just messing around with documents and filing. And I, I, that's important, right? But it's not the core of what we're supposed to be doing as, as attorneys. And you can't help if you compare it to software. If you write one good software program, you can help millions of people. It's hard to do. It takes a big fixed cost of stuff. If you write one good brief, it may help someone a lot, but it's just going to help someone that one time and that one instance. You have to apply that infinitely. So the math of how we help people doesn't add up. And I, I have struggled with that problem, I think, my whole career because it's not a problem with me. It's a problem with the profession and how we deliver legal services. It's something that we're talking about with the California Bar, um, which there have been significant developments in the last couple of weeks again. Um, uh, you know, so, so that there's something wrong that we have to address. It's not us. There is a place for, you know, very, very traditional legal research and writing work. And I, you know, even as a CEO of a startup, finding people that could read and write well and communicate well and analyze well, that was the single most important thing, the hardest thing we had to do. It was easier to find engineers at a certain point. Um, so those core skills are re- relevant and valuable, 
it's just we have to address both sides of the profession and what the clients need, not just our narcissistically narrow pathway of what you're supposed to do. All the truisms that existed when I graduated from law school, they don't exist anymore. Oh, if you go to this school, you'll get this job. It's just not true, right? And the COVID is going to disrupt more things. So how do you adapt to this environment? You know, how do you not freak out? How do you use AI as a tool? This is important stuff. There are structurally things that are wrong that make the job of the lawyer less fulfilling than it should be, in my view. Is this what motivated you to write your book, which is appropriately named On Legal AI? Um, that's a, a great question. So I think uh, my goal in writing the book was to just stop talking about history. I've obviously failed at that, um, but it's a lot of... There, there are two reasons for that. One is to just help the profession. Two is the, the AI, the technology wave is coming. The more people can understand the basics of this and how much, the more people can understand, attorneys can understand how much they can actually grok everything that's going on in these things and, and actually dive into how the technology can help them and deliver legal services at a scale they've never seen before, help them economically, help their well-being, all these things. That would be huge. I mean, why isn't practicing law more like creating a film, right? Where you spend a year on a really hard problem and you do something very specific. So when I was an associate, I became I don't know, the specialist in the entire global firm on this one narrow California statute, right? And everyone just called me for it, right? You can do that with software too. And it can make the job of the attorneys more like creators and less like, you know, factory workers from 1950, right? Which is unfortunate. Some of the some of the time it's like you're a factory worker. That automation piece, if you can handle it, makes the other side much frees you up to be more creative and think about managing your client, do better, managing your people. How many, how many law firm partners are taught how to manage people? Like zero. Like zero. I had a team meeting when I was a senior attorney and that was kind of weird, but I could get away with it because you can't bill it, right? We didn't really usually at the time unless it was very focused on a client. But you do that. Like if you ask an engineer or anyone in business, do you have team meetings? It's like, of course we have team meetings. Are you insane? We have a 15-minute stand-up every day or it's a weekly staff meeting. It's like, of course you do that. We're not trained to do any of those things. Um, We're great eggheads, right? But we're not trained to manage people. When I was a CEO, what I learned... And you learn at this like massively accelerated rate, as you guys know, with creating your own business, because you have to do everything. You have to be like a therapist to every one of, not that for emotional difficulties, but to understand who they are, what's the unique thing that makes one person tick over the other, and and how do you help that person uh, actualize, be that the, the perform at their highest level. And then if you've got you know a bunch of really smart people, how do you keep them from like, attack each other right uh how do you how do you how do you get a diverse group and i i mean diverse in every way right in every respect um all my teams fortunately been really really diverse not because i focused on that because i'm trying to deliver the maximum product and and just like with michael hurrigan right that our crown prosecutor cop in in rwanda you really need all of those skill sets to deliver a superior product um we don't have that it's um and I think, I think surgeons at hospitals, like we're word surgeons, right? So it's the same kind of arrogance, fear that drives law firms into this kind of unipolar world where it's you're an attorney and there's everything else. 
you need to have data analysts, you need to have mathematicians, you need to all, and, and you want the best in the world for that, right? The same way you want to be the best at real estate law or M&A work or litigation or, or lemon law, like whatever it is, we don't focus on hiring the best heterogeneous teams to deliver the output. And that's why the, the law, law profession is so exposed to accounting firms, not just in, in, in the, not just overseas, but also in the U.S., people at the adjacency of legal practice or in the middle, they're hiring all kinds of people and they're putting them together. They're funding startups. The law, firm, law firms, in, by extent, by relation, are kind of crippled. Like We're incredibly good at a certain type of thing. We should be doing more. But there's this like crippled effect, too, that we can't seem to get by. And you know, we're trying to push for the ability to, to enable law firms to do more. Um, as I love the work, I love doing actual legal work too. And, um, and I missed that when I was doing other things. Do you believe that the billable hour, um, has some sort of effect on this structure and, um, how law firms are having trouble diversifying and adapting? Um, profoundly. I mean, I do think we need different legal models. Uh, California two weeks ago, the same week that Felicia and Kabuga, the, 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 um, indicted individual I mentioned before was arrested in Paris. Uh, the state, no, no causal relation, but it was the same week. Uh, the state bar of California, the trustees, but it, um, I believe it was nine to two in favor of a, of a pilot program to look at. Can we, uh, experiment under carefully regulated conditions? Uh, the ability of law firms, for instance, to take outside financing, uh, the ability of software to provide what is otherwise be construed as legal advice, right? Again, carefully controlled, um, uh, things. And, um, that is, uh, one of the things that I think is it trying to address this, the, the effect of our own isolation, right? Um, when I think of the legal profession, I think of Meiji Japan. Uh, sorry, sorry, the Toka, Tokugawa Japan, the shogunate Japan with samurais and stuff. There were samurais and, uh, Japan had this beautiful view, had, still has this beautiful, beautiful culture. But the, the shogun back in the day said no more Westerners at one point and just cut off sort of, in, with the exception of Nagasaki, the entire country was cut off for lots of reasons. A lot of it was religious conversion and a lot of it was a, a lot of other things. And, as as history, it's an incredible. I love reading about Japanese history, but what happened is the rest of the world accelerated because there were all this trade. And if you had a, a idea for a steamship in the U.S., it would quickly go to to Europe. I was reading about the Wright brothers this weekend. The Wright brothers were in Europe like immediately, right? So they did their experiment and they had their plane. It went to France and then they went to Germany and then they went to Italy. Right? It was a very fast transfer of innovation. Um, and that's another complicated story. Japan had isolated itself. So all of that technical innovation and other types of government innovation didn't make it in until the U.S. showed up with, with gunships, basically. And there was a trade treaty that was sort of signed under duress. I'm not endorsing any bit of history or anything the U.S. did at all. But I do think for, its, for good reasons, the legal industry has isolated itself from the creative worlds from mathematics, from technology and software worlds. Uh, and we're fooling ourselves if we think we're up to date. We're not, right? We're way behind in a lot of ways, uh, engineering and marketing and, and uh, sales and product in, in a lot of areas. But that isolation had a very negative effect. 
The reason I use that example again is there were people in Japan, once the doors open, the people in Japan, like, Let, let's throw out our culture, let's get rid of it. And let's just be dressed like Westerners. There was another group that said, no, 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 let's create a hybrid and adopt certain ideas from, from Western and other government ideas. Um, let's adopt uh, technologies, right? And learn, like put on our learning hats, but maintain who we are. That's what we have to do. We cannot lose our identity as lawyers. It's based on the reading, that first year curriculum, right? That, that stuff is beautiful. No one else gets that. And that's something that's unique in the world. Like the U.S. legal education is, is a beautiful thing. But it's too, we're too isolated, particularly the profession is way too isolated. We're very innovative and creative in legal arguments. We haven't been nearly innovative or creative enough in uh, how we do the work, how it gets done. My life is better and my work is better, even though in this case, it's not pure legal work. It's, it's, it's something else. It's, it's risk management tools. It's financial tools. My life is better for being able to tap diverse minds and backgrounds to create a product that the client needs that's going to fill the gap for something that doesn't exist right now. It doesn't, it's hard to do that because of the billable model, billable hours model. It's hard to do that because of the partnership model, because every dollar you spend on R&D or an outside cost is pro rata one penny from that partner's, from her, for her paycheck, right? At the end of the year. So it's, it's a very hard argument. How do you make something more efficient when you get paid by the hours? What's really changed is clients just don't accept that billable hour anymore. But I have a pushback, actually. So I, I think here's the real problem. Here's both sides of the argument. You need the billable hour because the world is chaotic. And what the client does, the choices she makes, they're going to change the amount of time you need to spend working on something. There's infinite complexity in what we do. And that's why we're trained with analogical reasoning and these things. On the flip side, your bake-offs, right? If you're bidding for a lawsuit, like defense case, you, it's a bake-off situation. If you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you're, you're not paid by the amount of hours anyway. It's a, it's contingency. So both in both those scenarios, there's an incentive to be more productive. And clients know this. They're former lawyers. They go in-house. They have CFOs they've got to report to. When I was a GC, every cent we spent had to be justified. ITAR compliance, right? You know, this is uh, arms trafficking control, FCPA. Every dollar I spent on that, every outside counsel that I had to justify to engineers, aerospace engineers from, from Munich and from Toulouse and elsewhere, here's why we have to do this. And, and that was good discipline. It can be taken too far. But that was really good discipline. We've got to be able to think quantitatively as well. And, and here's why this stuff takes off. The, the people bought our software because two reasons. One, their competitors had it. And then the second reason was you could use the software to say, like, why, why would you want to hire lawyer A versus lawyer B? If she's better than lawyer B, you kind of know it. It's really hard to explain that to a controller or a CFO. But if you look at data, you can say, look, here's her, her outcome. She took really hard cases and she's the outcome. Here, here's the data that supports that the ROI on this hiring this attorney over that one is like 2x, right? So you can start to show them why people are different and better as opposed to just this race to the bottom where consultants are picking up all kinds of things, uh, uh, work that lawyers really should be doing. Anyway, so I think the billable hours is, is a profoundly complex problem. Um, but I think there's two sides to it. One is the infant complexity, right? Which data can help with, but at the end of the day, 
you do need some dynamism in the in the pricing model. The second is you have to become more efficient. But if you become more efficient, you should be able to bill more flexibly if you you hit a contingency that's totally different. And you know, there there's different ways of that's a whole nother, it's a very long conversation. Um my output is not always the number of hours I'm putting in. They tend to be high. Um, we need to be able to recognize that too, right? You need to be able to recognize the amount of work. So track that data, but also track, you've got a successful outcome here, or this is a creative thing that is going to be a breakthrough for the product, or this is going to help us avoid a regulatory issue two or three years down the road. That's really about, here's a patent, right? You need to be able to recognize the qualitative value as well as the quantitative thing. You need to deal with both things, but I don't, I don't, I think it's a complicated, I think it's a complicated problem. I don't want to say get rid of the billable hour because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's dependent in part upon what the client does. I'm looking forward to seeing you guys on the next episode.